When the Lord calls us to bear one another's burdens, those burdens include matters of race. When the Lord calls us to bear one another's burdens, add to that category things like illness or financial hardship or brokenheartedness. Add to that racial issues, racism, matters of race. Let's get right to the scriptures today. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 to 3, I'm going to skip around a little bit. And so I'm going to read this for you, but if you want to jot it down or, or open it up, it's Galatians chapter 6, 2 to 3 is our primary text. You're going to find there the bear or carry each other's burdens uh, phrase. So I'll read that to you. Galatians 6, 2 to 3, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And there it is in black and white ink or in pixels. We are called to this. If I see my brother or sister carrying a burden, that's a trigger mechanism for me. I'm supposed to see that and go over there and help them carry it to share the burden with them. I cannot just look the other way. I must not simply go on about my business. I'm called by the Lord in his name out of love for my brother or sister to help them carry that burden. Now, of course, this can have a physical application, right? If you see someone carrying something heavy, you can go and help them. But it really is more metaphorical, right? It's saying, if your brother or sister is under duress, go to them and help. Sympathize with them. Pray for them. See if there's anything you can do. Provide fellowship for them and help them. Of course, we do this. What happens when we go and help our sisters and brothers with their burdens? What happens? The scripture tells us when we bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. Did you know that? Many times you have carried the burdens of others. I've seen you bear their burdens. When you did so, did you know that you were fulfilling a law? The law of Christ. It's a law that the Lord calls us to. You were. That's a very glorious thing. In doing so, you were by the Holy Spirit, which lives in you, by the new creature that God has made you into. You were fulfilling the law of Christ. When you bore another's burdens, you were doing by the Spirit what the law requires. Well, what is the law of Christ specifically? Throughout Galatians, Paul is teaching the Christians that they don't need to fulfill the Mosaic law of being circumcised in order to belong to Jesus. Some people were troubling them. Some that said they were teachers were troubling them and said, you have Jesus, but now you need to add Moses. You need to add Moses and his law if you want to belong to God's people. And Paul teaches them again by the Holy Spirit, no, you just need Jesus. And he tells us what the law of Christ is in opposition to the law of Moses. Just a few verses before in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul writes, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, meaning a phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in 
one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the law of Christ is to love one another. That's what it is. And of course, what did our Lord Jesus do? He loved us by sacrificing himself so that we might be forgiven. He is the ultimate burden bearer. The greatest expression of love for neighbor. So when we bear burdens for one another, we are loving one another, we are fulfilling the ultimate purpose of the law, and we're pointing to Jesus himself. The gospel shines forth when we bear burdens. There is great power. There is great power in bearing one another's burdens. Did you know that? Just that time when you did a little personal ministry to your brother or sister, there was great power in that. Far more than you may have seen in the moment. Now this is the starting point for my proposal this morning, which is once again, when the Lord calls us to bear one another's burdens, those burdens include matters of race. And you may already be convinced that we need to carry one another's burdens, but you may not yet see that this includes matters of race and racism. I believe many of you do, but you may honestly be saying to yourself, you know, I'm not sure that's included in burden bearing. Well, let me give you three reasons why bearing one another's burdens includes race, issues of race and racism. First of all, we are members and we are family. And last week I talked about how we are family. This point will be very brief. All those that belong to Christ are family. I argued from scripture that when we belong to Jesus, he makes us family members. Our family in Christ is eternal. We enter the family with faith, repentance, and baptism. Not through physical birth, but through spiritual birth. Through being born from above, from God. From being born again is how we enter the family of God through Jesus Christ. And once we enter, it never ends. And Jesus said in Matthew 12 that those who do the will of the Father are his mother and sister and brother. The scriptures also liken the church to a body. Think about 1 Corinthians 12. Each of us that belong to Jesus are members of one body. Therefore, we are a unified whole. That's the reality. We are family and we are members together. We're family, like think of a family. We are members one of another, but don't just think of members like signing up on a list, but think of a body and the parts of the body. The parts of the body are members of the body. That's what we are, family and members together. To sum up, if we have members of our body, parts of the body, and family that are affected by racism, we shouldn't leave them to toil alone with that burden. But we should run over there and carry it together. So that's one reason we're members and we're family. But a second reason is that we have neighbors and our neighbors are suffering. We have neighbors and our neighbors are suffering. People all around us are in tremendous turmoil right now. Some are hurting, some are arguing, some are simply in angst with the concern about what should I do? Some are confused, some are trying to figure out how do I interpret this? Some are angry, some are very angry. But before we consider the concept of suffering neighbors, let's get real about the situation on the ground, shall we? Hear me on this, the world does not have answers to the injustice of racism 
The world's attempts at justice lead to more injustice. That's the way of the world. Be assured of this. If anyone buys the world's remedy for racial injustice, you're going to get ripped off. You're going to get more injustice. And you may well have that injustice pointed in your direction. This is important because we are afraid that some in our midst are already buying the world's remedies for racial injustice. Let me get right to the point by using the words that the world uses. The world regularly uses words and concepts like social justice, critical race theory, white privilege, being woke, intersectionality, etc., etc. Now, if you hear these words and they resonate with you, there's probably a very good reason why. And here's the good reason why. Because there is truth in these concepts. They're not all wrong. There is truth in them. But you must know that you can't leave it there because there are whole worldviews incorporated into these concepts. There are whole theologies packaged in there. When you use these phrases, you might use them in the best possible way. Okay, fair enough. You use them in the best possible way. But you must understand that these concepts are loaded with meaning that comes from places very opposed to Scripture and frankly anti-God. Take the concept of white privilege. If someone were to say that white privilege means that a person was born into and lived life within the majority white culture and has therefore benefited from that origination and is also therefore rather blind to the plight of minorities within the culture. I can accept that. In fact, I think the scriptures teach us themselves about our blindness to the plight of others. Part of what it means to be fallen into sin is to be inherently selfish. And of course, that extends beyond the individual to society at large. But you must understand that the creators and the purveyors of the concept of white privilege do not stop there. They're not simply making an observation about majority white culture. No. Instead, they go on to assert that those from the majority culture are therefore culpable and guilty, not on the basis of actual wrongs against the minority, but on the basis of originating from that culture. This is sometimes called white guilt. In other words, you are guilty because you are white. Purveyors of this theology go further. And when you use this concept, when you use this phrase, you need to understand you're partnering with the purveyors of this theory. They go further. They say, if you have the guilt of being white, you must atone for that guilt. Do you know how you atone for that guilt? You atone for that guilt through the concept of virtue signaling. You must demonstrate in every way possible that you are sorry for your guilt of being white. You must march. You must post online. If you own a business, you must make it a value of the business, and so on and so forth. If you only do 80% of what is prescribed for your sin, but not 100%, then your racism is still not purged from your soul. And this is why we say 
social justice as it has been created and as it is advanced by its strongest advocates is another gospel. Not because there's no racism in this world, not because there's no racism in America, not because there's no racial, racial injustice or inequality, not because we don't believe the church should speak to it, we believe it should, but because the creators and purveyors of these theories require atonement for the sin of being white or of being a man or of being straight or of being Christian. And make no mistake, brothers and sisters, that is where the hijackers of justice are taking this. Listen to me. This kind of doctrine cannot save, it cannot transform, it cannot bring reconciliation. All it offers is ongoing condemnation and further injustice. Now, as I said, we are concerned that some among us are already looking to the world for their answers. We are concerned that some among us are already turning to another gospel. Please do not turn to another gospel. There is no other gospel. There's no other saving work. Back to the concept of our neighbors. Remember the good Samaritan in Jesus' story from Luke chapter 10? The good Samaritan overlooked massive racism to care for a Jewish man who had been robbed, beaten, and left for dead on a secluded road. The point of that story is to teach us that if we as disciples of Jesus are in proximity to someone who is suffering, we should view them as our neighbor, as our responsibility. If you're in proximity to someone who is suffering, we should view them as our neighbor, as our responsibility. If someone's in pain and we are in proximity, then they are our neighbor. That's what Jesus is getting at. Doesn't matter what race, what ethnicity, doesn't matter the religion, doesn't matter. If they're in proximity and they're in pain, they are our neighbor. And we should do what we can to alleviate their pain and we should do so in the name of our master, the Lord Jesus. And this is, by the way, where social media gets it wrong. Digital proximity is not the same as actual proximity. Social media gives the illusion of presence. Hear me, that's not real. There are real people within our proximity, even outside the church, that need our care. And when someone in your presence is in pain, you are your brother's keeper. You have the opportunity to be a good Samaritan. Many of us are in proximity to African Americans or other ethnic minorities outside the church through our neighborhoods, or work, or school, or our past. Hear me, when your neighbor is in pain, we should run over and help them carry the burden. Let me give you the third reason why bearing burdens includes racial issues. And that's this, history matters. History matters. You see this all over Scripture. You see it in the genealogies and you see it in the whole history that was given of the old covenant community. You also see it in the gospel itself. Let me show you. We believe that God broke into human history and sent his son to be born of a virgin. Historical facts. At a certain time and in a certain place, that son of God also became the ultimate son of man. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man. 
We believe that the life he lived was made up of righteous acts throughout at certain points in certain places to certain people, all historical fact, and that he died on a wooden Roman cross outside of the Jewish city of Jerusalem. Further, that he rose from death, defeating both sin and death, that he did all of this about 2,000 years ago so that we could be brought to God. These are some of the historical facts that make up the gospel. So history, yes, history matters. If you still don't believe that history matters, look at your own life experience. Where are you from? What did you experience in that place? What was your life like? Where did you go to school? Who were your parents? Who were your grandparents? Where were they from? Do you bear any similarities? Do you have any shared experiences? Of course you do. We all do. History matters. Think of this. Do you remember the story of Esther? Her uncle's name was Mordecai. Do you remember the chief antagonist in that story? His name was Haman. Haman was an Amalekite who rose to great power in Persia, became second only to the king. Well, who were the Amalekites? The Amalekites were the first enemy of Israel right out of the gate. When the Israelites were set free from Egypt, the Amalekites were the first ones to do battle with them and sought to destroy them before they even reached Mount Sinai. You may remember, this was the battle where Moses held up his hands in prayer. And as long as his hands were in the air, the Israelites were winning the battle. And so some men came and helped him hold up his hands so that they would win. Well, the bad blood between the Israelites and the Amalekites goes on from there. It's a fascinating study. But you can see that in the story of Esther, which happened thousands of years after that first conflict between the Amalekites and the Israelites. In fact, that racism played a huge part in the story of Esther. Israel and the Amalekites were bitter enemies. And that's probably why Haman the Amalekite didn't want to just destroy Mordecai the Jew. He wanted to eradicate the entire Jewish race. It was history. History matters. And since history matters, African-American history matters. And it should matter to us. It should matter to God's people. We're American citizens. We're here. This is our earthly citizenship, right? It's not as important as our heavenly citizenship, but we're here. We have African-Americans in our midst. It needs to matter to us. Their history should matter to us. We need to show love through burden-bearing. Let's consider a brief overview. I'm no expert on African-American history, and I'm probably not going to tell you anything you don't already know, but this is part of the suffering that we need to consider so that we can bear one another's burdens. Think of this. As far as I can see, I could be wrong, but as far as I understand, African-Americans are the only immigrant group that did not come here because they wanted to come here. Let that sink in. The only immigrant group that I can think of that did not come here because they wanted to come here. Many immigrant groups have come. The United States is a nation of immigrants. Some have been mistreated. Some have been treated more poorly than others. But at the end of the day, they all came because they wanted to. They wanted a better life here in the United States. Not so for the African American. Every other ethnic group that came to these shores did so for a better life, but not black Americans. Think about that. You know how Africans arrived on this continent. 
chattel slavery, a horrific form of slavery. Yes, it has been done in many places and in many times, even to the present day. But that knowledge doesn't change the fact of how horrific it is, how much that's part of the African-American experience and struggle. That is how African-Americans arrived here. They were kidnapped from home, torn from their families, tormented on the journey over, treated no better than cattle, and sold as property. They didn't want to leave their families. They didn't want to come to America. And yet they were forced here. From what I can see, the first African slaves that were brought to the U.S. in chains were in the 1520s. It may have been even sooner. The slave trade in the Americas, however, seems to have really taken off in the 1600s, the early 1600s. Now think about this because it's also astounding. Maybe you've had thoughts like this in your life. Well, gee, I, I've lived in this house for more than half of my life. Or I've worked this job for more than a third of my life. Or I've spent my whole adult life in this area. Maybe you've had those kind of thoughts. Think about this because it is astounding. Even if you put the date of the slave trade at 1600, that means that African slavery was happening here in North America through the Revolutionary War into the United States and all the way to the 1860s. That's about 260 years. 1860 to the present time is approximately 160 years. 260 years of slavery. 160 years of no slavery. In other words... African Americans experienced slavery on this con continent for a much longer period of time than they have had freedom on this continent. Think about it. Think about it. Is that something we should easily dismiss when we have brothers and sisters who are directly related to this? That history matters. But the struggle doesn't end there, right? doesn't end there. We wish that it was a much different story, but for decades after the end of slavery... Black Americans were mistreated and marginalized and, and with not a little violence. This went on right through the periods of Jim Crow and segregation, and so much can be said about this. That history matters. Now, I wrestled with putting this next point in African American history into the sermon, but I will because I think it's part of where we are today, part of the struggle that African Americans had faced and there is a connection to biblical principle. So data shows that the war on poverty instituted by the U.S. government in the 1960s had the opposite effect from what was intended. And so my point here is to demonstrate that sometimes racism comes from the populace. Sometimes it comes from the government. And maybe not even intentionally so, although I think that is a real question. The black economist and social critic Thomas Sowell has been saying this since at least the 1980s. The data shows that blacks in the U.S. by percentage had more intact families and rising economic status than whites until the war on poverty. By incentivizing poverty rather than work, the government ensured that a high percentage of African Americans would remain impoverished and they damaged the actual strength of the black community, which had been their families. I'm not speaking to intentions here, and I'm not saying that all of the efforts of the war on poverty failed, but I am speaking to the results. And so poverty rates among black Americans and the associated temptations that go along with everyone who faces poverty in this world 
are part of the African-American struggle to this very day. That history matters. If all of this was part of our history, if it was part of your history, if this is what we heard from our grandparents and our parents, how would we be affected? An overview of black American history is important and it matters, but we need to go beyond that too. We need to look at the personal experience of some of our African American brothers and sisters. I want to thank Angela Williams for giving me permission to share this story of her own personal experience. This story will help us understand the degree degree of the problem and the need for us to bear this burden of racism together. In the fall of 2016, the Williams were living outside of Richmond, Virginia. A police officer comes to the door of their home and tells Angela that she has been accused of stealing seven items from a local makeup store. And let's just hit the pause button there. We're talking about Angela Angela Williams. If you know her at all, that seems impossible. Now in the store, Angela had been approached by a salesperson who asked her if she needed help, and she didn't, so she said no. She went on to purchase over $50 in supplies from the store. And a few weeks later, now she's accused of stealing. The evidence that the officer cited was held on a videotape the security tape from the store. And one of the officers that she interacted with her with told her that he saw the tape and the evidence of her stealing. She was deeply shaken because she knew the whole accusation was categorically untrue. And yet they're telling her that they have video evidence of her stealing seven items from this makeup store. The high end of the potential penalty for this crime was actual jail time. There are some devastating details in this story, but for time's sake, I will get to the resolution of it. After three court dates over many weeks, after a mysterious hesitancy from the prosecution to play the videotapes and show the supposed evidence, after weeks of anxiety for Angela and Dwayne, and the life-altering, the way that would alter your worldview to be falsely accused like that. After these things, the prosecutor dropped the charge and admitted that there was no incriminating evidence on the security tapes. Those tapes were never even shown, never even brought forward. You know that God hates false accusation. You know he hates it. And it very much seems that our sister was falsely accused simply because she is black. That is pure injustice. Almost like the store said, you know what, we've had some things stolen. There was a black woman here. We've got her on tape. Just go, you know, let's go make the charge. Let's tell the officers we've got the evidence. And all that, all that injustice. Unfortunately, unfortunately, this is much more common than we may have understood. And can you see through her experience why black Americans may not be entirely convinced that there will be justice for their ethnicity? Can you also see how whenever Angela goes to a store now, she's worried? She makes certain that her hands are clearly visible at all times. She wonders why the sales staff is asking her if she needs help. Are they really seeking to be helpful or are they just keeping an eye on her? 
She handles herself very intentionally in a store. This and many other everyday events are different for black Americans than for the white majority American. Let's take this a step further and bring these stories into Lancaster. Some time ago, Tracy Geyer stepped into a Lancaster city street with her two African-American children. But she did so too, stu <laughs> she did so too soon. And uh, Tracy needs to pay attention to the uh, traffic better. She did so too soon. Her children follow after her. The car that drove by, the, the driver was aggravated. He angrily and through the open window called them the N-word as he drove past. How incredibly heartbreaking. In Lancaster City, two of the children of our members being treated in such a despicable manner. Right up the street here. Right up the street. Dwayne Williams, who is a doctor, has told me of a recurring experience that he has. Very often when he walks into the room to serve a white family, he catches the pause, the hesitation. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced hesitation from someone? It's not the best feeling, is it? Have you ever drawn near to someone and you've seen them tense up? Or have you ever gotten the feeling that someone wasn't completely comfortable with you? You may not even know the reason, but you perceived the hesitation and you wondered, what was that about? It may not even have been about you, but there becomes a question. A question enters your mind. What's going on here? Why, Why the hesitation? It's not the most pleasant thing to experience. Now, what if that happens 50% of the time at work? What if it happens more than that? What if it happens more often? You may begin to conclude that people have something against you. People that have never met you have something against you. It will tempt you to judge people's motives. It may even tempt you to anger. You know, when Dwayne experiences this over and over, he pushes past it, and guess what? He sees people become more comfortable. And the more they experience him, the more comfortable they get. This is a great example for us. Dwayne has chosen to not take offense and simply pushes past to serve them. But just consider what it must be like to face that continually in his actual profession. What must that be like? Each black American that I have asked has told me the same thing, and I can't even share all the stories here. They have multiple stories of negative racial experiences. Some are less aggressive, and some are more aggressive, meaning some of, the, some of the racial tension, the racial injustices they've felt are less aggressive, maybe like what Dwayne experiences at work. And some are more aggressive, maybe like what Tracy and the kids experienced on a Lancaster city street. But this is an everyday reality for the African-American. And we have brothers and sisters. We have family. We have members who are African-American. We have neighbors who are African-American. And it's for us to bear their burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I'm going to ask Doug to come. We're going to partake of communion together in just a moment. When the Lord calls us to bear one another's burdens, those burdens do include matters of race. 
They do include matters of race. I know that many of us are eager to do this very thing. I know that many of us have have actually fought against racism in our personal lives. But we all must understand that this is not optional for the people of God. I said this back in my October sermon on racism, so let me repeat it now. If our vision, if someone's vision, if your vision of the new heavens and the new earth does not include people from every tribe, from every language, from every nation, and from every people, then we need to, you need to look again at our understanding of what Christ has accomplished on that cross for us and what it means to be a Christian. I really want to see our church be a place where every ethnicity is is not just a welcome guest. Where every ethnicity is not just an honored guest. But where every ethnicity, wherever God is saving, whoever God is saving, knows that they're fully part of the family. Knows it because of our love. Remember this. The United States of America began as an ideal It's an awesome ideal. It's an ideal based on biblical principle. Remember the Declaration of Independence? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I'm grateful for so much in this country, but let's face the fact, there was some rank hypocrisy on that statement for a very long time, wasn't there? And in some ways it continues In fact, the very man who wrote those words did not apply that truth to his own slaves. I do. I thank God for this country. I thank God this freedom of of religion that we have. We're gathered here. Isn't it glorious? There's so much good. There's so much law and order. But it's still a broken world. And this is a broken nation. And we shouldn't deceive ourselves into thinking otherwise. There is a glaring, gaping hole in the assertion of equality in the history of the United States. You know, as I said, that principle for the United States that all men are created equal, that comes from Scripture. That comes from God. It comes from Jesus Christ. The church has that ideal as well. We can't fix the world and all of its problems. But we do need to know that God is literally saving people from every ethnicity, every nation, every tribe, and every language. And we can demonstrate this grace on this earth if we will bear one another's burdens. If we will bear their burdens. Crossway Church Sermon Audio 